Certainly thankful for the presence of each and every one and thankful to our Father in heaven who has made this day possible, provided for us this memorial to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and provided an opportunity to know his word and to be strengthened by his word. And that's what we're going to hopefully do in the remaining time today, be strengthened by his word. We have a wonderful statement that we find about disciples in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And I'm fairly certain that you know what this passage deals with. In reading from the King James Version, talks about the fact that Barnabas was working with these disciples at Antioch and he determined to find Saul, who later on becomes Paul, and bring him to Antioch to work with him with these disciples. And so it says in verse 26, when he had found him, when Barnabas found Saul, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now, when you think about this situation, the church had been in existence for, for quite a while. You know, dozens of years prior to that, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, it talks about those who believing on Pentecost were then baptized and added to the body of Christ. And so verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So, the church had been in existence for decades prior to this particular time. It was made up of apostles and prophets and disciples. And all of these individuals were faithful and they were from many different places. Surely then in thinking about these faithful ones, they did everything that God required of them. Why is it? that we only read first of this name right here. And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know why this is the first place. I can make a guess as to why it's the first place because Antioch is a place that has Jews and Gentiles together working together as the family of God and it certainly could be that that is part of the reason that it is given. But we want to spend our time this morning thinking about the name Christian and thinking about what it means. So our lesson today is simply called being called a Christian. Now, one of the first things we want to deal with this morning is something that it's possible you've heard of, maybe not. But did you know that there are many people who believe that the name Christian was given in sarcasm? Now there's a website, it's supposedly a religious website, and it's called Got Questions. You know, years ago, uh, there was that uh, campaign, Got Milk. Well, they've got a website called Got Questions. And so the idea is if you have a question about religion, you go to this website and you, you type it in and they'll tell you what the answer is. Now what's so interesting is that they believe, whoever these people are, and I didn't do any extensive research into it, they believe that the term Christian 
is not given for a good reason. They believe it was given to mock individuals. It was given in sarcasm. It was given as a point of derision. And so when you go to this site and you, and you look for the origin of the name Christian, here's some of the things it says. The followers of Jesus Christ were first referred to as Christians by the Gentiles of Syrian Antioch. The name was more than likely meant as an insult. They went on to say in the New Testament, believers never refer to themselves as Christians. Rather, they use such terms as brethren, like in Acts 15, disciples, as we find here in Acts 11, verse 26, saints. Before his conversion, Saul of Tarsus sought out those that he referred to who belonged to the way, indicating that an early label for Christians would have been people of the way. At the time that believers got the appellation Christians, it was common for the Greeks to give satirical nicknames to particular groups. Both the Bible and history suggest that the term Christian was probably meant as a mockering, mocking insult when it was first coined. Peter actually tells his readers not to be ashamed of that name, 1 Peter 4.16. Likewise, when Paul goes to Herod in Acts chapter 26, Herod Agrippa rejects Paul's appeal to be saved. He says, do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? And he was probably playing off of the negative reputation of that term. Why would he, a king, submit to the indignity of being called a Christian? Now, they provide no evidence for that. And really all you have to do is look at any any reputable commentary in dealing with the book of Acts and they all say the same thing that this was a name of honor that it wasn't given as a mockery or a sarcasm but it's interesting that there are people out there when you ask them what are they religiously and they might say well I, I'm Baptist I'm Lutheran I'm Methodist I'm Presbyterian I'm this I'm that and then they say well what are you and then you say well I'm a Christian and then they go, well, well, I am too. Well, then why call yourself by the name of a man? Oh, well, don't you know, they will say, that the name Christian was actually given to make fun of people. Now, that may be so, but I don't know why calling yourself by the name of a man makes it better than being called by the name of a follower of Jesus Christ. But there are individuals out there who want to utilize this explanation as a reason why I don't use the name Christian. But I want you to follow along with me and note what we actually find in the scriptures. What we find in the scriptures is that there is a Greek word, the word called, that is used right here in verse 26. Now one of the blessings we have of God is that the Greek language of the first and second century eventually died out. So it, it changed and those words remain fixed in time. And what we have is this Greek word krematizo. It means divinely warned or revealed. Now we have it in different English words throughout the scriptures. So when we look at the account that is found in Matthew chapter 2 in dealing with Joseph 
and taking his family and fleeing from uh, Herod and then going into Egypt, it says that he was warned of God. So God told him, God provided a message saying, you need to flee Herod. And then when Herod's son Archelaus uh, comes and becomes king, he says, well, don't, don't go back this way. So they end up going to Nazareth. When we have the account that is found in Luke chapter 2 in dealing with this one individual, Simeon, God had revealed unto him that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost. That word revealed is the same word krematidso. It was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then we have the account that's found in Acts chapter 10 in verse 22 in dealing with Cornelius. And it says, they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man and one that feareth God of a good report among all the nations of the Jews was warned from God by an angel to send for thee into his house and to hear words of thee. So in each case, it's the same exact Greek word as the word called that's found in Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And thus, in each case, the word refers to a divine message of warning, a declaration, or some form of information that has come from God. So when the disciples in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, are called Christians, it's not a name of derision from the Greeks around them. It is the Holy Spirit revealing unto us that God is happy with them. The Holy Spirit is revealing unto us that this is information that God wants us to know that he is pleased with. Why is that? Well, one reason is because God promised to give his people a new name. We find this in a prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 62, and in verses 1 and 2, it simply says, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Now, later on in the book of Jeremiah, we have a prophecy from Jeremiah in dealing with the fact that there is going to be a, a new covenant that will exist. God promised a new covenant. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, we, we've read these verses uh, many different times. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their father in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
One of the things that God is dealing with here as to part of the reason that there would be a new covenant was because the old covenant people broke that covenant and departed from God. And he says in verse 32, though I was a husband unto them. So that old wife left and went off into adultery. And so in a spiritual sense, they were divorced from God and he now is married to a new wife. Well, that new wife is going to take on the name of the husband. And so we have found in, in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, a discussion about the husband and the wife. The husband loving the wife as Christ loved the church. So we see there's a connection there in dealing with this concept of a new union being formed. And the one who is brought into that union now takes on the name of the husband involved in that union. We also have in the book of Hosea, in Hosea chapter 2 and in verse 23, it says, I will sow her unto me in the earth. I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people. And they shall say, Thou art my God. So one of the things we have promised under the old covenant is a new covenant and a new relationship, a new people, and a new name. So we conclude in looking at Acts chapter 11, verse 26, that this name is divinely given to the people of God as promised under his old covenant. Covenant. It is not a name given in sarcasm. It is a name divinely revealed by God. And part of the reason is it's a name that refers to God. Uh, again, looking at what we find in Acts chapter 6, excuse me, not Acts chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, Whom do you say that I am? Matthew 16, verse 15. And verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So Jesus said, Yes, I am the Christ. And that has been revealed by my Father who is in heaven. And he said that for those of us who were to be his disciples, we are to follow him. Matthew 16, verse 24. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Who are we supposed to follow? We're supposed to follow Jesus. Jesus who is the Christ. So we are disciples of Jesus who is the Christ. We are followers of Jesus who is the Christ. When we think about those prophecies given and thus how they relate to Jesus, John is very clear about telling us that he is God who came in the flesh. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14. The word was made flesh 
and dwelt among us. So it's talking about the fact that the word was God and then as God came to dwell with man, to dwell among man. It's a wonderful comparison in thinking about the very beginning and God creating man and walking with man in the garden. And then here we have God returning and being with man and walking with man, Jesus with his disciples. And of course, God's promise is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we have this continuing abiding relationship with God. When we think about the fact that it is making reference then to God who came in the flesh, we thus note what the Christian name is not or what the Christian name doesn't have reference to. First and foremost, it's not a man's name. So it doesn't matter in dealing with these particular historical figures, how much they loved God, how much they sought to serve God, how much of their life was given over to studying God's word and teaching God's word, none of that matters. If they did not impress upon their followers, you're not following me, you're following God. Don't make reference to God's people by a human name. We know that it's not the name of a system like Methodist. And again, you know, if you want to honor God, then you honor God the way he says he desires to be honored by remembering his name, not some system. It's not the name of an organization like Presbyterian or Roman Catholic, the way that they're set up so that they, they, they watch over or rule over their people. It's not the name of a practice like Seventh-day Adventism. It's not the name of a place like Nazarene. It's not the name of a time period like Latter-day Saints. It is a name that makes reference to the followers of Jesus Christ. Let's go back again to Acts chapter 11 and just note a couple of things that help us to understand that. When we read the context of Acts chapter 11, looking at verse 21, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. So we're talking about individuals who've turned unto the Lord. Verse 23, and speaking of Barnabas, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Then we look at verse 24. He was a man of good, he was a good man full of the Holy Ghost and of faith and much people was added unto the Lord. Then verse 26, when he brings Saul and they work with the disciples, it says they assembled themselves with the church. So all of these things are pointing to the Lord and pointing to the Lord's people in dealing with not man or anything made of or made by man. It is a name given only to those who are disciples of, followers of Jesus Christ. It is a name that is a directional name because it points unto our master. 
in John's Gospel, John chapter 13 and in verses 13 and 14, we have an account here of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And he says in verses 13 and 14, ye call me master and Lord. And ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. So Jesus said, I am your master and I am your Lord and you recognize that. So when we think about the idea of disciples, we think about not simply those who are studying the scriptures, but we think of those who are actively involved in following Jesus who is the Christ. And we find this concept of thinking about master and Lord and being in submission to and being one who follows him throughout the Lord's teaching. So when he provided the uh, parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, he talks about this man who goes off into a far country and it says he delivered unto his servants these talents, one, two, and five. And then those who were faithful unto him, excuse me, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 19, it says, After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and reckoned with them. So he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. So we see that Jesus, in presenting this parable, was emphasizing the fact that someone is over others. The Lord, who is our master, is over those who are his servants who serve him. In looking at uh, Colossians chapter 4 and in verse 1, Paul was inspired to remind them of where their focus should be. He said, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. So we think about the fact that our master is in heaven. We are his servants. Our goal in being his servants is that we are to flee from sin so that we might maintain our relationship with him. Uh, Paul, in writing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy and in chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, he said, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor, some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So he says, you avoid those things and follow the things that make you for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. The passage that we made reference to earlier, 
uh, as found in uh, Peter's epistle. 1 Peter chapter 2 in dealing with the Lord as our guide, the Lord as our perfect example. When we talk about the idea of being disciples, we follow. What does it mean to follow? It's more than studying. It's actively taking on the imagery that is presented by our master. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse 21, even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when is reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who by his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sin, should live under righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed." And we think about the fact that, that Jesus himself said, he is our shepherd, he is our guide. John's gospel, John chapter 10, and in verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Verses 14 through 18, I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, power to take it again. This commandment have I received of the Father." So it's a name that is directional because it points us to our master. It is a name that is purposeful. Again, uh, in Peter's epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. He says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happier ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. When we look at verse 16 especially, if you remember in the very beginning, I talked about how that this article on uh, God questions said that Peter had to tell them not to be ashamed. But he's not telling them not to be ashamed of the name Christian. He's telling them, don't be ashamed if you suffer. That's what he's dealing with. Christ left us an example that he suffered to glorify the Father. And so he said, now if you suffer as an evildoer, yeah, you should be ashamed of that. You shouldn't be classified among the evildoers. But if you're suffering because you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're suffering wrongfully, then you should not be ashamed. The being ashamed 
doesn't have to do with the name as much as it has to do with the individual who is being pointed out because of their lifestyle. Jesus said that our purpose is to honor and to glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, he said, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So you contrast Matthew 5.16 with 1 Peter 4.16. And Jesus was saying, let people see what you do so that your Father will be glorified. And Peter was saying, when they see what you're doing and they cause you to suffer, know that your Father will be glorified in heaven. Our Lord himself said that in dealing with our relationship with him and abiding in him, maintaining that relationship with him, this is the only way that we can bear fruit and to honor our Father in heaven. John 15, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. So Jesus connected discipleship and bearing fruit, living for him according to his word, with honoring and glorifying his Father in heaven. And there is no other name that was given that we can deal with. Peter said as much in Acts chapter 4 beginning in verse 10, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Thus, every day we wear this name. We are reminded of our master. We are reminded that we are his servants. We are reminded that our responsibility is to honor and glorify his name and that the only way we can do this is to follow in his steps. And following in his steps may cause us that we have to suffer. But in so doing, we will honor 
and glorify that name. We want to conclude then with our lesson this morning in thinking about these disciples that we find in Acts chapter 11 in dealing with them and God's applying to them the name uh, uh, the name of these disciples uh, applying to them uh, the name of Christ. What do we know about these particular individuals? Well, let's read the context here. Beginning in Acts chapter 11, actually let's back up to verse 19. It says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tiding of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem. And they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad. And exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a man, a good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when they had found him... Brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So what do we find out about this group? Uh, we find out in verse 20, it was a diverse group. It talks about men of Cyprus and Cyrene and individuals of Antioch. We find that they were an evangelistic group. Verse 21 talks about the fact that they had been teaching Verse 20, preaching the Lord, a great number believed in verse 21 and turned unto the Lord. Uh, they were welcoming because when this news reaches Jerusalem, Barnabas comes and then he sees what's going on. And now he's a part of that group and he is working with that group. We find that they were studious. They assembled themselves with the church and people were being taught. So they made reference to God's word, they discussed God's word, they lived according to God's word. We find out that they were united. It says they assembled themselves with the church. You remember the situation with Saul when he first becomes a Christian and he wants to assemble with the disciples when he goes to Jerusalem. But they knew him as a persecutor. So they didn't want to have anything to do with them. It's Barnabas then that introduces Saul to the apostles and it says he was with them coming in and going out. So now he is assembling with them. So when we deal with Antioch, there's none of that. When, when Barnabas and Saul come, they don't go, hey, wait a minute. We were doing fine without you. We were teaching, etc., etc. No, they were thankful to have apostles there with them, uh, or not, uh, weren't apostles at that time, obviously, but to have these teachers with them who were knowledgeable in dealing with God's word, who had been sent by the apostles to go ahead and help them. You know, it's interesting that people have this thought process that when help is offered, I'm going to refuse it. Whereas what we find with the disciples is there's, there's none of that. When help is offered, they accept it. The more the merrier, so to speak. So we find that these are individuals who are assembled together and they're observing God's commands and they're faithful in their duties. And so, again, we look at what we find 
in verse 19 and recognizing that there were many that left according to after the persecution of Stephen and they were preaching but they were preaching to Jews only but verse 20 tells us that the men of Cyprus and Cyrene in coming unto Antioch began to preach unto the Greeks so now we do have a cohesive group of individuals fulfilling the prophecy that God gave that he would bring all these people together. People who were not called by his name would be called by his name. And these disciples are called Christians first at Antioch. The name Christian means that I am to be a determined follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple. I don't wear that name falsely like uh, denomination people do, calling themselves first by men's names or by some other uh, appellation oh but I am a Christian I'm just a thus and such Christian well we don't find a thus and such Christian we find disciples as Christians followers of Jesus Christ I need to be sure that I'm not wearing it neglectfully uh, these individuals in Antioch were involved in doing the work that needed to be done in keeping his commands I I'm not to wear it ignorantly not understanding the level of commitment and what it means to follow him. You know, when the rich young man comes to Jesus, Jesus said, you know, give up the things that you have and come follow me. And, and he wouldn't. Uh, he didn't want to be a follower. And we have to recognize that if we're going to wear his name, we have to honor him by living a life that imitates his life and bearing fruit through him unto our Heavenly Father. And of course, you can only wear this name rightfully if you really are his disciple. You can't just say that I'm a Christian. You have to be one of his. And the only way that you become one of his is in obedience to the gospel. This morning, in the book of Romans, we read in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6, about a death, a burial, and a resurrection. An imitation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When one heard the gospel message, believed that Jesus is Christ, confessed him as such, repented of their sins, they were baptized. An imitation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's how we become a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's how we become a follower. That's how God knows us as a Christian. And if there's anyone we can help to obey the gospel this morning, please let us know while we stand and while we sing.